Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. This message is entitled Communication, Illusion or Reality? Communication, Illusion or Reality? Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. You have no idea how long I've been waiting to give this message. I was snowed out. I was uh, caught with the flu on the second time I was going to do this, and I was assured myself that if I didn't make it here today, I was going to shelve this, and God didn't want it given. And I still wasn't sure. As I was walking up here, Jan looked at me, and I said, well, I'm still not up the front yet, but we're here now, so... Welcome to Anna and Alex. Pleasure to have you here. It is the 12th day of the third month. We've been counting towards Pentecost. We are now counting towards trumpets. We are, any guesses? What's the over-under on, don't look it up. Any guesses on the number of days to, pen, to trumpets? You know I put it in the bulletin this week, right? 107, there you go. <laughs> April 21st of this year, in a little town on the Arizona-New Mexico border, 92-year-old Roy Hawthorne Sr. died. I'd never heard of Roy. You likely never heard of Roy. Maybe you have. He has a small footprint in history. I was in my car not long after that day listening to Fox News, and it was part of the, the newsreel that day. He survived by his five children, 12 grandchildren, and was a U.S. Army veteran of World War II. He enlisted at the age of 17, and he was an integral part of the Allied victory over Japan in the Asian conflict. But he didn't pick up a gun in that conflict. He was part of a group of 500 code talkers that helped the Allies secure victory in World War II. This concept of code talking was pioneered in World War I by the Cherokee and Choctaw Native American tribes. And when World War II came on the scene, there were 12 different tribes that employed the use of their language in what was called code talking to help the Allies pass messages over the, the wavelengths I'm not, a, I'm, not, I'm not a technical guy, but they transmitted code messages through the use of these 12 different Native American, I believe that's still okay to use that phraseology, Native American languages. You may have heard of Alan Turing. He was made famous in the movie The Imitation Game. He was a British pioneer computer scientist who helped break the German Enigma code on the European front in World War II. That, that story was made famous. The story of the Navajo code talkers has, not, has been less pronounced. The, among the 12 languages that were used, the reason why the Navajo code talkers developed prominence is their code was and has never been broken. 
It was never broken due to the extremely complex rules of grammar and pronunciation. And these group of men, these 500 men that served from their various tribes, helped the U.S. Army and Marine Corps gain victory over these Japanese forces. It went unrewarded, unacknowledged by the U.S. government until 1982 when President Ronald Reagan finally publicly acknowledged their service to the people. Later on, a couple of administrations later, President Clinton presented the 29 original Code Talkers with Congressional Gold Medals and then the others who followed up and served in their footsteps with silver medals. And this code talking that allowed them to have various servants on uh, place throughout the, the Pacific conflict went undetected by the Japanese. They could, they could pass, they, they would sit with the, the, the English-speaking uh, generals on either side and the, the, the leaders at various sides of the army and then they would pass over, the, they would transmit over the, the airwaves the orders through the various languages. Specifically, Roy here, he served in the, the Navajo language. Depending on what side you're on, this is a great example of effective or ineffective communication. For the Allies, this was extremely effective. In fact, the code was never broken. If you're on the Asian side, the Japanese side, they couldn't figure what was going on. So I suppose even from that standpoint, it was a very effective method of communication. George Bernard Shaw had a very profound statement. I want you to listen to this. He said, the single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has already taken place. The single biggest problem in communication is the illusion that it has taken place. Seven weeks ago, and as I said, after two tries, we introduced the topic of communication. We looked at what happens when we don't communicate at all. We looked at what happens when we do effectively communicate. And we came to what I think is an obvious conclusion, but one that is rooted and supported in Scripture that communication is a necessary and a good thing in the body of Christ. What I would like to do today is to continue our studies into this topic of godly communication. We'll dig deeper into the teachings of God through the biblical writers. And what I'd like to do is look at what constitutes effective and ineffective communication. So the first time, and we're, we're going we're, we're to review, for those of you who, who weren't here, haven't heard it, or it's been seven weeks, uh, we're going to review part one, real quickly here at the start of the message. But the fact that we've come to the conclusion that communication is a good thing, we're not going to debate that here. We're not going to walk through that again. Let's talk now, break down communication, since it is a good thing, and look at effective versus ineffective communication. And in fact, what we'll see is not only can communication be ineffective, it can be destructive if it's not godly. So let's just take a few minutes and review part one. We initially talked about the oneness of God. We walked through John chapter 17 and noted how Christ's prayer with his disciples after the Passover service before his death was one where he prayed for unity amongst the brethren, that they would, they would have the same unity that he and his father shared. He, being the Logos, the Word, the one who communicated on behalf of the Father 
to us. And how we communicate with him, how we communicate with the Father, and ultimately, then, with each other, is paramount in our relationship. Everything we do as human beings is about relationship. And what defines relationship is communication. The body of Christ is predicated on relationships. And how we communicate in these relationships sets the stage for how successful our relationships are. We looked at what happens when we don't communicate. We looked at the example of Adam and God. Adam having a very intimate relationship with God, so much so that we looked at the story of him naming the animals and how God just brought them to him and there was free flow. And whatever Adam said, that's what they became. So there was a very intimate uh, communicative relationship between Adam and the father. We looked at then how after that, in succumbing to the temptations of the serpent, of Satan himself, how things went awry. First, Adam turned on God. Then ultimately, he threw woman. She wasn't Eve then. Her name was woman. He threw her under the bus when God shone some light on the issue. And he ended up throwing her under the bus. We looked at Cain and his failure to communicate properly and how he took out his frustration on God's acceptance of his offering, not on God, but on Abel, by killing him. And we saw how sometimes what happens when we don't communicate or we communicate improperly turns to violence. It was Abel's offering that was accepted by God. Cain had many options. He could have sought advice from Abel to find out, well, what was it about your offering? How did you present it that made it acceptable? Maybe I can learn from you. But what he did was he took out his jealousy and his anger with God on Abel. What we saw there is how we communicate really reveals a lot about our hearts and where we stand. We looked at some examples of Communication, what happens when we do communicate? We looked at the example of Abraham and God going back on forth, back and forth on would God save anybody from Sodom? And how God allowed Abraham to have that free flow communication to debate back and forth, to, to bring God down to a certain level. And then we noticed at the end that they, it was just like they parted ways like we do at the end of a service, that they had a, a, such a good relationship that they could, they could banter back and forth and then... Their relationship moved on. We looked at Christ and Peter, Christ and God. And what happens when we rationally and freely communicate with respect, but with the heart to do what is right and build stronger ties in our relationships. We then went through and dealt with offenses because that happens in relationships. There's stumbling blocks. We irritate each other. We do things. This is the human condition. But what do we properly do? When that happens, how do we address those offenses? There are good ways and there are bad ways and what God expects of us. And at the end, we briefly touched on why people don't communicate or why people don't properly communicate, and that is through fear. Today, let's move on, and we'll begin with effective communication. So we set the stage that, with the obvious but with a scripturally supported foundation that communication is a good thing. But not all communication is good. 
there can be bad and poor communication. Let's start out with some examples here in Acts as we begin to look at effective communication. As the New Testament church grew from its birth at Pentecost, which we just celebrated and reviewed last weekend on the Holy, Holy Day, let's, as we go through some of these examples, let's pay close attention to how they communicated. Let's begin in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We know the day of Pentecost. We reviewed it last week. We worked up to it over the previous seven weeks, had fully arrived. They all arrived with one accord to receive the, the Holy Spirit. Peter preached his sermon, and many, many people were tweaked in the heart and asked what could be done. Peter was there with his fellow apostles to encourage them to repent, to become baptized, to give their lives to this way of life, to receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, the end of this occurrence, the end of this day, we see what the follow-up was with these group of folks that gave their lives to this way of life on that first Pentecost. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And let's see what they did. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. We've been hearing Pastor Adrian, Deacon Jan, talk about these elements of truth, of behavior, of passion, and how they represent the whole sanctification process from baptism through to glorification, and how these concepts are interwoven. Here, they tackled truth. They dug into scriptures. And they also fellowshiped. This is all part of the, the building of the relationships that they had. They broke bread together and they prayed together. We can see the various ways that they communicated together as a group and with God. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. They were together. We can't be in this life alone. We can't can't communicate to ourselves. Well, you could, but they have words for that. And they're not healthy words, especially if you answer yourself. It's okay to talk to yourself, but if you answer yourself, you've taken it one step further. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord. When we hear that phrase, one accord, that is a relationship word. That, that, tells, that tells you the, the depth of their relationship. And breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God. So again, there's communication to our Father. And having favor with all people. And what was God able to do when they were in this, this condition of, of of deep relationship, communicating with each other, sharing, sharing truth, digging into their Bibles, breaking bread, fellowshipping, being of one accord. He was able to add to the church daily those who were being saved. When we look at the beginning of the New Testament church, we see how foundational communication was to their relationship. These were a group of folks from who knows where they came from. 
Did they know each other beforehand? Maybe some did. I, I don't suspect all 3,000 knew each other. We don't know where they, they, we don't know where they went afterwards because they all they came they came from far around. It did. We do see that uh, at the beginning of Acts two. But we see here how foundational communication was here and how much they 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 gave to the relationship. And as you're building relationships, it's what you give to it that that gives it strength. So that's the foundation as the New Testament church was was born. And it was born on communication with each other and with God. Let's go now to Acts 15. We're going to specifically look at some incidents in Paul's second missionary journey. We're going to start in Acts 15. And again, these are stories we've read. We've already been through on the Wednesday night Bible studies, the whole series on the book of Acts. Here we're going to look at some of these stories from with our with our communication glasses on. We're going to look through through the lens of communication. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Disputes happen in relationships. We're all in relationships. We have work relationships. We have, we have, may or may not have marital relationships. We, have, we, we all have parental relationships. Your parents might not still be uh, alive, but you've, you've had parent relationships. You may have child relationships, sibling relationships, friend relationships. Disputes happen in relationships. There's no getting around that. We saw, we talked a little bit about last time about how to address offenses. Here we see a dispute, what, what, we, what we see here called a dissension. It happens. What's important is what to do when dissension happens. We're going to see how these Holy Spirit-filled leaders walked through a dissension. And it was all based on proper communication. Verse, let's drop down to verse 6. We don't have time to go through the whole story. Let's get down to the crux of it, down in verse 6. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider the matter. Let's stop and analyze this word, consider. This is, in, this is an important part to the process. They came together in Jerusalem as a group of leaders, and they considered the matter. This Greek word consider is Edo, it's 1492, and it means to fully appreciate, to perceive, or to comprehend. Strong's goes on in describing this word to indicate that it bridges the gap from physically seeing something to mentally or spiritually comprehending something. So this just wasn't a one-statement note on a whiteboard that, okay, be it resolved that this, here's the problem, now we're going to argue about it. They came together, and they considered the matter. And before they got down into the weeds of it, they had to understand what the issue was here. This was a huge, huge issue. And they needed to really, really understand what the problem was. And as they began to understand it, 
this group, what, how, how Luke writes this here is that they fully, they came to a point in, at the start of their discussion to fully appreciate and comprehend what the problem was. Let's continue. Men and brethren, or verse 7, and when there, when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, let's take a break before we get into what, what Peter said. We looked at this word consider, now we're going to look at this word dispute. There was a serious dissension between factions in this meeting. So we've got a group of leaders and there's a serious dissension over this, over this concept, this topic. How did they work towards resolution? This word dispute, sometimes we adopt, we, we transpose our current understanding of a word back into the Bible, and we see dispute, oh, they must have argued. Let's see what Strong's breaks down this Greek word for dispute as what it means. It's Greek 4803, and it's pronounced su- Suzetesis. I've got it wrong, I'm sure, but it's 4803. That's important. You can look that up. Suzetesis. And it means to mutually question. So they've got an issue. They are, cons- they are considering it, which we means to fully grasp what the problem is. And in the course of their grasp, they're fully understanding it. What they're now doing is they're asking questions. One side asks questions of the other. The other asks questions of this side. Because we must seek first to understand, then to be understood. Paul could have slammed his fist on on the table and said, you know what, this is, God has shown this to me, and we are doing it this way. And if you're not with me, you're against me, and I'm going, and we're just going to do it. That's not what this dispute was. They asked questions of each other so they could get a full, so they could fully consider, get a full concept of what this, what was going on, so they could work towards a solution. Part of effective communication in a contentious dispute involves listening and asking questions. I may think I know what you mean, but I'm not sure that I've stopped and buttoned my lip long enough to hear what you have to say. So tell me what. Give me everything so that I have a full concept of where we're at. Once I know where your head is at and everything that that you you mean by this, now we can talk. And I would ask that you do the same of me so that we fully understand and fully consider both sides of the matter. Can we be better here? Don't answer that question here. We can recap the rest of the story here. We don't have time here. What we see here, though, is Peter provides concrete evidence where God clearly directed him to accept converted Gentiles into the body. So once they've considered the, the, the whole matter and they throw questions back and forth so everybody understands where, where we're at, Peter then stands up and Peter begins to speak there in verse 8. We won't, start, we won't go through that, but he provides concrete evidence where God has provided to him and told him, and, we, and we, we realize where that came from. We, we've read back in Acts 9, 10, 11 with the, the dreams that God is accepting Gentiles into Israel. That if they commit to Christ and they are baptized and repent, 
God is accepting Gentiles. We then see Paul. So it wasn't Peter. It wasn't just Peter. Paul and Barnabas, we then see, add more evidence of miracles and wonders that they've seen. Then James, backed up by Peter, cites scripture. That's important. So we've got miracles, we've got evidence, and we've got scripture. Where all these leaders are gathering in a room after fully considering both sides of the issue, asking questions back and forth. We have miracles, we have evidence, we have scripture. Rational discussions replete with scriptural support and evidence. With the Holy Spirit guiding them in a spirit of questioning, mutual questioning. We come to verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. And they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the brethren, and the, sorry, the, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. And then we see a unified response to what was a serious dissent, dissentive issue. But they didn't just consider, they didn't just in our 21st century lingo consider and dispute till they hammered away at a decision. We see what they did. They fully understood the problem. They, they listened first, asked questions so everybody could understand. Then they went to the Bible. And they had people provide evidence in their lives. These apostles provide evidence of what they've seen. Allowing the Holy Spirit to bring them together. And together they came with a, a single answer that has now is, is there for us in Scripture. A letter written by all of them. And then even sending it out. Some of them selected to go out into the body and make sure everybody understood where this group of leaders was. And that they together they've come to this decision that they all agree on. Let's go to Acts 17. Paul comes to Thessalonica. Verse 2. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Reasoned with them. Didn't beat them over the head with it. He reasoned with them. Explaining and demonstrating. Explaining. So provide Scripture first. And then in his... His spiritual maturity as an apostle chosen by Christ explained it first to them and then provided concrete examples where it made sense, where they could actually, uh, they could actually relate these scriptures to what he was explaining, demonstrating that the, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So clearly, before he got there, they weren't all in on this concept that the risen Jesus was the Christ. But over the course of time, as he took time to patiently lead them and explain to them from Scripture, 
some devout Greeks gave their lives to Christ and became part of Israel. But the Jews who were not persuaded, verse 5, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered, gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them into the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, those, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and he's all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, of, and the rest they let them go. So we see here not, not everybody buys it. But what do we see with Paul's reasoning with them? Some were converted. Those who didn't buy in are filled with violence, are filled just like Cain was. In the spirit of Cain, he, Cain could have talked to Abel. Wow, I really let God down. But he appreciated your offering. What did, how did you go through your process of offering? Well, maybe I can learn from you. We see here the opposite to effective communication. And we see, and we're, we're going to come to that in a little bit when we get into ineffective communication. Then we see, let's drop down to, well, continue verse 10. The, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Here they were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. And in that they received the word with all readiness. That's part of the, the communication process here too. They were they, these Bereans who we look up to as these fair-minded group of people who studied scripture. What made them special is they were fair-minded and they were ready to receive. They weren't ready to give. Here, listen to what I have to say. You know what? The Holy Sp- I, we have the Holy Spirit. Let me hear what you have to say. And it will guide me to see if what you have to say is right. Let me be quiet and let me listen to what you have to say, Paul. They were fair-minded. And they, and they received with readiness because they knew we could search the scriptures. We can find this out. If what he's saying is, is inaccurate, I, we don't need to get our, our shorts in or not. We just read the scriptures. And it's either accurate or it's not. And they, they, they were fair-minded that way. Dropping down to verse, continuing the story, we see, and we won't take time to go further than verse 16, but we see, that wasn't always the case with Paul and, how he, and what he had presented. Some were fair-minded. Some were not. Some treated him with disdain. And that happens in the course of communication. Then we drop down to verse 22. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. And I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So as we become, continue to become more comfortable talking about our faith, we see an example of Paul where he's thrust in front of these Greek religious people who talked about this unknown God. Paul could have got his back up, hammered away at the God of Israel, he said, you know what? Let me go to them on their terms. They want to talk about an unknown God? I'll talk about an unknown God. And he talked to them about Yahweh, the real unknown God to, to the Greeks. 
And what do we see in verse 34? How, verse 33, Paul de- departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. He was calm. He was rational. They want, they want to talk about their unknown God? I'll talk about their unknown God. And what did he do? Converted at least two people and others with them. We see it uh, just drop down to verse 4 of chapter 18. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So we see this rational way Paul had with them. That as much as he knew the truth, there was a way that he could communicate so he could open hearts and minds. So there's a very effective way to communicate. Let's go to Numbers 12. Numbers 12. Verse 1. Then Numbers 12, verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. They didn't say they spoke to Moses. They spoke against Moses. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, and notice they're referencing Moses in the third person. So they weren't talking to him. They were talking about him. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he, the Lord, not spoken also through us? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. They spoke amongst themselves about someone else in a negative way. And God heard it and called them out on it. Yes, there was leadership involved. Moses was God's chosen person. But they were all in various levels of leadership with the church, with the children of Israel. Aaron was a high priest. By virtue of her relationship with her brothers, she led them in song. We see that in Exodus 15. So she had some sort of leadership role with, alongside them. So this is a, there is some leadership aspect here. But this also involved three siblings. So there's a sibling relationship here amongst the three of them as well, with two of them conspiring against the other in a secretive, gossip-filled, and certainly not what we saw displayed at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where they openly talked about their issues. Here they conspired together against Moses, and God called them out on it. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10, because Paul digs a little deeper into the attitudes of the children of Israel that brought them down, the first generation of Israelites that were, that were brought down in the wilderness, we heard a lot about the wilderness and what a fascinating uh, presentations we heard last weekend from Dorian Cook. First Corinthians 10 verse 6. Here Paul lists the sins of Israel and what brought them down. 
and it uses them here in his message to the Corinthian church as examples for us. And he says so here in verse 6 where we begin. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpent, by serpents. Nor complain as some of them who also complain. He's listing some serious grave sins here. Lusting, sexual immorality, idolatry, and complaining. Complaining is on par with these, with these other three serious sins that brought them down. And co- nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the age have come. Complaining, or as the King James Version records the word murmuring. This word murmuring, were, uh, Greek 111, Gogizo, uh, Gogizo is as close as I can come to it, G-O-G-G-Y-Z-O. That word came from this word that has been translated into murmuring, is an onomatopoeic term. That's these words that sound like, like squish or sloosh. Imitating the sound of cooing doves. That's where this word murmuring came from. And it means to murmur or mutter or grumble with muffled undertones. Not clear and asking forthright questions like they did in the Jerusalem Council, but like Miriam and Aaron did, where they were quiet in a corner. And to show, from Strong's again, to show smoldering discontent. Smoldering, these embers that never seem to go out, but are always there, ready to catch fire with the right, with the right addition. Droning on in a low, constant murmur. We, we, we hear stories in cities of these low hums that drive people mad. That's what this murmuring was driving God mad. Because it was this low, constant hum. Murmur, murmur, murmur. And we see here how complaining, ineffective, destructive communication was on par in God's eyes with idolatry, sexual immorality, and lusting. And it brought Israel down. And we cover in our lead up to Passover repeatedly all these stories of how they crossed the, they got to the Red Sea and complained. Then we heard a, a possible way that they crossed last week in a miraculous way if that's how it happened. And they got to the other side and they complained again. If you were part of what you saw, if, if that's the way it happened last week, the way we were presented, how could anyone complain when they got to the other side? But they, they all did, except for two. Let's go to Galatians 5, so we can continue to consider ineffective communication. Galatians 5. Let's look at the works of the flesh. We see here the last part of the chapter, the works of the flesh presented up against the fruit of the Spirit. Let's look at the works of the flesh. 
those characteristics that we need to expel from our lives, that we need to get rid of, that we need to stop being like. And as we go through them, I want you to consider how many could be completely avoided with proper communication. Let's walk through these and see how many of these works of the flesh could be completely avoided with, God, with the godly communication we saw in Acts 15. Now, these are the works of the flesh are evident. Adul- adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. We see here part and parcel of what, what we've been hearing from Revelation and the sanctification message, this talk here of, of improper behavior. Idolatry and sorcery. Now let's, now we're going to get into these ones that I wanted to point your attention to. Hatred or hostility. If we could communicate properly and openly in a disputive way, the way the Jerusalem Council did, and ask questions, how could we be hostile or hate any brethren if we, if we communicated properly? Contentions, which is described as variance or strife. If we communicated properly, would there be any contentions? Outbursts of wrath. Outbursts of wrath screams of lack of self-control. If we behaved the way the Jerusalem Council did, and just listened, there would be no we would avoid completely outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions, which is also described as strife. Dissensions. Dissensions described as seditions or standing apart. If we had true communication with proper relationships, we couldn't, we couldn't be in a state of dissension. We, could, we wouldn't stand apart. We would, be, we would always be respecting the body. Heresies. Heresies are where opinions trump the truth. Where opinions trump truth. And then we continue on in these, as we read here, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. But look at how many of these works of the flesh could be completely avoided if we knew how to completely and properly communicate God's way. Society has lost the ability to rationally talk without taking offense. We, we see a myriad of examples. I posted online the, the monk debate. And I agreed with Becca's comment. It was confusing, most of it, except for, the, except for our, our one friend, Jordan Peterson, who tried to, to, to portray some sort of sensibility. Unless you knew the background of, as to what, the, what the, the postmodernists talk about, you wouldn't be able to follow it. It was just nonsensical. How is that effective communication? We see, that we see a myriad of examples of ineffective communication. And we've posted some on Slack as we're trying to get our heads around this communication. Where if I don't like it, I'm just going to yell at you. I'm going to just scream louder and louder and louder, so I'm going to drown you out. And you won't, you won't have an opportunity. If you don't like that, I'm going to get violent. We see myriad of examples of that. Group identity. We talked about group identity last weekend with the Infuse folks and the Ignite young people. It separates us where the Holy Spirit unites us. And we walked them through 1 Corinthians 12 that talks about the unity of the Spirit. We see, unfortunately, examples of factions in the greater body of Christ that, fo- that, 
focus on our differences while battling society that teaches us that it is our differences that define us. And the louder you yell, the stronger you act. Be the first to strike so that your faction wins out. And unfortunately, this can creep into the body. Ask some speakers who've been on the receiving end. I know we've got two here, not just Pastor Adrian. Deacon Jan's been on the receiving end. Unfortunately, within the body, it happens. Rather than calmly and rationally saying, I heard what you said, but let's have a, let's have a rational discussion about this. Let's dispute the way they disputed in Acts 15. Why don't I hear what you have to say? Then you be quiet and you listen to what I have to say. Then we'll bring out scripture, we'll look at evidence, and we'll come to some sort of conclusion. And if we don't, we're still brothers and sisters. And we see examples where both we've both been perpetrator. Maybe you can think back into your life where maybe you've been the perpetrator or the victim of poorly executed or, willf- or willful miscommunication. You, may, you might not have meant to do it. Maybe in your lack of growth you did. But we see and we must protect against this in the body, this type of communication. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Verse 9. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And this is not righteous anger. The Bible also speaks of righteous anger. This is talking about unrighteous anger. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. Don't be so quick to be unrighteously angry. And while you have that in mind, let's go over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Because as we consider unrighteous anger, this is usually played out and made manifest as we, we go to James chapter 1 verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious... And does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Anger, unrighteous anger that Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes, is made manifest through an unbridled tongue. And it screams of outbursts of wrath, which is a work of the flesh. Let's go now to Second Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. This was part of the scripture reading we had earlier in the service. This is Paul's last letter, at least his chronologically his last letter in the canon to one of his protégés, Timothy, as he trains him and helps him understand how to be a better leader. 
And we pick it up in verse 14, 2 Timothy 2. Remind them of these things. Remind the brethren of these things. Charging before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers, but to be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So when we gather together as brethren, we have, there are two ways we can break Scripture down. We can rightly divide it, calmly and rationally as we saw them in the Jerusalem Council. Or we can do it to no profit, where there's no benefit, there's no edification to the brethren. And we see examples that we've gone through where that, is clear, that clearly happens. We experienced, I'm sure you can look back in your, your time, where you've experienced it being of no profit. And people leave a service ruined. They didn't, they didn't leave it edified. They left it ruined. So we can do it to, to, with words to no profit, or we can rightly divide the word of truth and edify the group. Even through a dissension where we might not agree, but we can do it in such a way that we all come away feeling edified. I can think back to leaders in my life who I remember walking away going, I think he just took me to task, but I feel really, really good about it. That's a talent to be able to take someone to task and have them walk away and feel really, really good about themselves. Let's continue. But shun profane and idle babblings. That's... That is pretty strong language from Paul. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. We are having a, a fast day for a sister who has cancer spreading through her. We know the impact of cancer. Idle babblings, while initially just idle babblings, grow to the impact of cancer if not checked, if not handled, if not communicated properly. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth. But look at the progression here from just some idle babblings that go unchecked to the point where they become cancerous to the point where it drives people away from truth because it was not handled the same way the Jerusalem Council was handled in their communication. This phrase idle babblings doesn't sound so bad. It's like the first mosquito of the season. Mosquitoes, they're an annoyance. If you're one that they like, they like the smell of your blood, I'm one of those. I remember camping with Lisa one time, way back when we were first married. We were camping with another couple. It was an old, one of those old pop-up trailers. And there must have been a hole somewhere in this old pop-up trailer. Because that night, the one mosquito got in. And it was right here. Right in my ear. All night. And all Lisa kept hearing was, because ah, ah, I kept missing it. What an annoyance this one mosquito was. But unbridled. Do you know the list of deadly diseases in places not in the West that mosquitoes can carry? When unbridled, we find them annoying here when we, go, when we go camping and we get one mosquito in the tent. But the list 
of diseases that a mosquito can kill if left unbridled to the point where a mosquito is, is a deadly force. You've heard them all. The West Nile virus, malaria, dengue fever, encephalitis, Zika fever. These are just the ones I can pronounce. And there's a whole other list. You find a mosquito annoying. Mosquitoes, if left unbridled, become like these idle babblings that turn cancerous. It's okay. If you just over, over, it seems like it's okay to just overlook an idle babbling. But, but Paul here tells us the ramifications of such. There is a proper and a right way to deal with these things in the body when we look at effective versus ineffective communication. And we saw that played out in Acts 15. Listen to all sides. Ask questions so we can completely, completely understand both sides or all sides. It might not be both sides. Maybe there's all sides. Maybe there's more than two sides. Then we look at evidence, support from Scripture to make a prayerful decision that then led by the Holy Spirit unites us as brethren. As we work our way towards the return of Christ, these are the things that will make us better. These are the things that will help us endure through the times that we read about in Revelation. These are the things that will help us repent and overcome and be unified and reach the point from sanctification to glorification. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12 as we start to wind down here. 1 Corinthians 12. This is what we went to last week with the Infuse and Ignite youth. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. Look around. There are 22 or so of us here now. We are 22 individuals, but we are part of the body. As individuals, we become one. We become one. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Whatever group think principle might divide you, you might think you belong to, you belong to the body of Christ, united to it by the Holy Spirit. And have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Many members making up one body. This requires healthy communication. This demands healthy communication. We see what happens when it, there's unhealthy communication. We see it. We've read it. We've gone through it. We see the flip side. What happens when there's healthy communication? You can resolve something as, as huge as do Gentiles belong in Israel, through healthy communication. That is way bigger than most of our nonsense that we've ever come through. They walked through. Can you imagine these guys going down to Jerusalem? Who is saying Gentiles are allowed into Israel? We must all get to Jerusalem and fix this. And they came away with a unified letter saying, absolutely, Gentiles are allowed. If they can solve that, there's no reason that the body of Christ can't resolve anything. We are one body. Any other behavior than first and foremost putting the body of Christ first represents 
idolatry. Me over Christ breaks the first commandment. And once you've broken the first one, you've broken the rest. Gossiping, murmuring, driving wedges anywhere within the body. And this can easily be done. This is so easy to do. Because those murmurings, idle, those wedges, those murmurings, those gossip, those are idle babblings. It's just something. But left untended, it becomes a cancer. Let's go to Hebrews 13. Verse 5, from the King James. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Let your conversation be without covetousness. If you go to other, ver- other versions, let your conduct be without covetousness. Let's break this, this word down here, this word conversation that we find in the King James Version. Strong's further defines this word conversation. It's 5158 in the Greek lexicon as, as the word, Greek word tropos. And it means your way, your manner, your character, and your course of conduct. Well, that's not conversation. Perhaps the New King James Version has it better when it says, let your conduct be without covetousness. But our conversation defines all of our conduct. Our conduct is made manifest by how we talk. We've seen that. So conversation is accurate because it defines our conduct. It defines our way. How we speak reveals who we are. How we speak reveals who we are. You're either really honest and you've got issues. You're really honest or you're godly. Or if you're not being true to what's in your heart, that's even deeper problems. So our conversation defines who we are. How we speak defines exactly who we are. Not maybe to each other, but definitely to God. God knows our heart based on our conversation. And he heard. He heard Miriam and he heard Aaron. And God called them out on that. So God knows where our hearts are. Through that. Our hearts, who we are, are made manifest by how we converse. And again, we've been studying the three main areas of concern for the body as we work towards the return of Christ. Doctrine, behavior, and passion. Our words, how we interact, how we communicate, all reflect where we have gaps in these areas, where we need to pay attention and heed the words of our Savior where we need to fix these areas. As deep as the lessons we are learning from the book of Revelation, as deep as they are, and they are profound what we are working through, as massive as the understanding that we have undertaken with understanding the entire process of sanctification and how deep it is rooted in Scripture and how intertwined these two topics are, and we continue to unpack these in various forms, so also is this all-encompassing topic of godly communication. These three Big, big topics all relate. When you dig deeper, proper communication 
supports all of these things. And it will come up again. I have no plans for a third message on communication. But I can't see how it doesn't come up when we are talking about how we get through some of these things that we see ahead of us. How we, be, how we work from justification to glorification, this long process through this life. How we see how we together overcome what will be ahead of us. But we need to commit to each other and hold each other accountable to right and true communication. Don't participate in murmurings. Don't participate in gossip, in these idle babblings. And as we consider improving our communication, let me leave you with two scriptures. Let's first go back to 2 Timothy 2. I'd like to leave you with two scriptures. 2 Timothy 2. And what we will see is the onus for right and proper communication is on everybody. No one, no one is immune to the onus and the requirement of proper communication. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. We covered that. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. When you are in a position of service, whether it be eldership or other areas of service, there is a right way to communicate. Now let's go to Hebrews 13. Verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. When you are in a position of being served, there is also a right way to communicate. So the onus, regardless of the role you play, the onus is on everybody to communicate properly. In both cases, proper communication both protects the relationship and encourages more and joyful service. Satan is the god of illusion. Don't fall prey to the illusion that communication has already taken place when it really has not. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.